two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The Flip Side. I'm Jeff Melley, the head of research at Barclays. And I'm joined today by Harry Matier, who runs U.S. credit research and covers investment-grade energy. Thanks for joining me, Harry. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, Harry, you're joining our milestone 50th episode of The Flip Side. It's hard to believe all the ways that the economy and markets have evolved since we started this series. No doubt. The world has transformed significantly in the past few years. Right, well, I'm looking forward to seeing how the world evolves between now and our 100th episode. Uh, but for today, we're going to talk about what role energy prices will play in the global economy going forward. Barclays is forecasting a recession in many developed economies. We think that will start in Q4 of this year in Europe and in early 2023 in the United States. This kind of grim forecast is due in large part to the significantly tighter monetary policy that central banks around the globe have had to enact as they try to combat inflation, which has proven to be very high and very persistent since economies started recovering from COVID. Well, Jeff, high energy prices have clearly contributed to this dire forecast and to the tightening we've seen from central banks. While most central banks look through near-term swings in energy prices when setting policy, prices spiked with the invasion of Ukraine, and those higher costs are flowing through the economy, contributing to generalized inflation. Prices are so high in parts of Europe, in particular, that we see them as a major factor behind the coming slowdown. Well, I definitely agree uh, that the uh, energy prices we're facing have contributed to our forecast. But the question now is, as we get ready for what I think is a pretty grim economic outlook, will the pressure from energy costs continue and affect the severity of any possible recession? So I think the answer is yes. I see supply constraints as being the biggest factor behind the high cost of energy. And these are not going away. In fact, some of them are likely to get worse. I expect energy prices will remain stubbornly high, regardless of the economic cycle, and will play a role in deepening the slowdown. Well, Harry, I disagree. I think the slowdown we're forecasting is significant enough and and widespread enough that demand for energy is going to fall. And it'll fall by enough that all of the supply constraints that you're talking about are not really going to be the binding constraint going forward. Well, let's start with how supplies experience a perfect storm. I'll go through some of the issues and highlight where I think the pressure is likely to be sustained through the economic cycle. The war in Ukraine has resulted in material increases in gas prices, most notably in Europe, where they were up over 300% at the peak and are still 70% higher from the end of 2021. And there's no long-term fix. Now, just as an aside, when most people talk about gas prices, they refer to what you use to drive your car. But as an energy analyst, you're talking about natural gas. That's right. Uh, Of course, the price of the pump matters a lot to consumers, particularly here in the U.S. But what matters more right now for the global economy is the price of natural gas, which is used to generate electricity, homes, and as a major raw material for industry. Prices of nat gas are so high that there are undeniable immediate economic consequences. Higher costs are a big factor in our forecast of a recession, and manufacturing facilities in parts of Europe are reducing operating rates or even shutting down. Heating bills for consumers are likely to rise so much that governments are trying to find ways to soften the blow heading into winter, often at the cost of raising significant debt. And we just saw in the UK that there are limits to what governments can do on that front. Well, now it is true, Harry, that governments in Europe are trying to get creative about limiting the immediate hit to consumers in the face of high energy prices. But I don't actually don't think it's quite right to blame the recent volatility in the UK on their energy cap proposal. That proposal actually went over pretty well. 
It was the combination of trying to cap energy prices and engage in a massive tax cut that seemed to spark the, the market volatility. Germany, for example, still has really low debt to GDP and I think can easily afford the, to sort of ease the burden on households and businesses. Okay, that may be true now, but I think the situation is likely to worsen. Tension with Russia remains very high, and Russia used to be the single largest supplier of imported gas to Europe. In 2021, Russia alone provided over 30% of Europe's total gas consumption. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which runs from Russia to Germany, was shut down in late August, ostensibly for repairs, but since then there have been back-and-forth allegations of sabotage. So who knows if or when it will restart? You know, for context, that single pipeline met over 10% of Europe's gas demand in 2021. You know, Europe did a good job getting prepared for some of the issues that you're raising, Harry. In particular, they did a good job storing natural gas once the war started. So, for example, Germany reached its 85% October storage target a month early and its 95% November storage target two weeks early. I think some of the risks that you're talking about around shortages are mitigated by this good planning. Sure, that buys time for the winter, but what then? You know, this year, keep in mind, had the benefit of Russian gas still flowing to Europe through most of the summer. Going forward, there's no way to replenish stock. And even those statistics help make my point. Germany was a month ahead of its October goal, but only two weeks ahead of its November goal. Well, it's clear, I think, that Europe is going to have to find new sources of energy. And uh, one obvious candidate, I, I think, is the U.S. We have developed increased capacity to export LNG, that's liquefied natural gas, which we have plenty of here in the U.S., given the developments in shale and fracking. So it's true that the U.S. has increased capacity to export gas, but let me put some numbers around this to illustrate the size of the challenge faced by Europe. The U.S. capacity to export LNG is about 13 BCF a day. That's billion cubic feet a day. For context, 2021 Russia gas exports to Europe were 18 BCF a day, and that's across an entire year, so it doesn't account for peak winter needs. More importantly, U.S. LNG is being sold into a global market with multiple regions competing for that gas. Prices are high in Asia, too. It's not only Europe. And the lead time is long. Other than restarting the damaged Freeport LNG facility in the next few months, the next meaningful U.S. capacity expansion won't be until 2024. You know, we have found ourselves in a tricky situation. So there's obvious longer-term concerns about fossil fuels, which have resulted in more limited development of extraction and export capacity. But now we find ourselves in a situation where we need it for national security to buffer the economic hit to important allies, and we're suffering from that lack of investment. That's true. And you're hitting on another longer-term challenge. Investment in energy production is structurally low, and I don't see that changing. In fact, investment in energy production is not sufficient to keep up with expected demand growth. After peaking in 2014 at over $800 billion, global capital spending on oil and gas declined to just $400 billion in 2020, so down by half. $423 billion in 2021 is estimated to be just $500 billion in 2022. We think this is insufficient investment to keep up with demand. We think it's most acute for oil. Investment in 2021 was the lowest since 2006, but oil consumption in 2021 was up 11% from 2006. Well, first of all, Harry, the raw comparisons of investment dollars, I think, sound somewhat scarier than the reality of the meaning of the investment that's happening. So, for example, the shale revolution here in the U.S. was meant to help produce low-cost oil and gas that's easier to extract. The point is it's cheap so that you don't actually need the same investment dollars to get the sort of same return in terms of product. And second, I think that, you know, we're talking about a situation where prices might remain elevated. Certainly they're elevated right now. Um, we'll see investment pick up. Um, it doesn't, ha it's not sustainable for investment to be as low as it is right now, given the, given the potential for companies to earn returns. 
there's merit to the argument that shale is cheaper. And it's also a shorter cycle, which means it can ramp up fairly quickly after investing. But at the same time, we're a ways into the shale revolution. And in many fields, the best acreage is already drilled. Further, we're in an era of extreme inflation. The raw numbers I gave you earlier were nominal, but you need to think about real investment, which makes the comps even worse. And even if investment suddenly climbs back to previous highs, there's still a bill to pay for years of underinvestment. You know, Harry, I still believe that the biggest constraint on U.S. energy production is political. Our capacity is artificially limited by regional constraints on fracking, on regional constraints on pipeline construction and capacity. But we're starting to see that high energy prices create a backlash against these politically driven constraints. Jeff, even if those constraints are relaxed, we might not get more drilling. There's a real disconnect happening right now in the U.S. between what producers who are publicly traded on exchanges are doing and producers who are privately held. Consider that private exploration and production companies are growing 20% this year, but public's only around 5%. Private operators are actually accounting for nearly 60% of the recount. That was closer to 40% just a couple of years ago. What we're finding is that publics are resistant to new investment, even at higher prices. And the problem is that public EMP companies still represent most of U.S. output. Yeah, and we've written about this where there's a p- possible link between this divergence in behavior and the growth in passive ownership of the public companies, where passive owners may prefer that companies return money to shareholders rather than engage in zero-sum competition where they uh, all incrementally drill and then collectively drive the prices down or, or the costs of drilling up. Um, you know, that, that actually is, is a potential constraint on public investment. However, as you note, private companies are drilling, and we've even seen a reasonably large energy company move from public to private in order to release itself from this sort of pressure from shareholders. Uh, this seems to be more about the distribution of who's generating the energy rather than the sort of sum total of the capacity. Okay, but longer-term incentives to invest are still limited as management teams prepare for what we think is an inevitable transition away from fossil fuels. Yeah, and I guess what I would go back to my political points, which is to say that I'm not sure how inevitable that transition is. I think we're seeing the consequences in pretty sharp relief uh, that might shift the narrative. You know, when I think about ESG as an example, I think of it as a framework for assessing trade-offs. Obviously, what we're what we've seen in in the past has been a lot of focus on the E, on the environment, and the and the you know very real consequences of our reliance on fossil fuels for things like global warming. At the same time, there's a trade-off here associated with the S, which I don't think we fully understood. But now society is maybe struggling a bit from our underinvestment uh, in in our energy capabilities, and and even at times it's playing a role in geopolitics on the on the international stage as we think about our allies and how they respond to certain threats. Even if that's correct, choke points exist in other parts of the supply chain. Refining capacity declined, notably in the U.S. and Europe, meaning that even if we had enough oil, the ability to convert that into what people and businesses actually use is more difficult. Well, I have seen actually some media reports about the possibility of rationing heating oil in the U.S. Northeast due to a lack of supply. I will admit that that seems somewhat hard to reconcile with the government releasing barrels of oil at a record pace from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It does, but keep in mind those are releases of crude, not end products. Well, Harry, I don't want to make light of all of these supply constraints that you're mentioning. And I acknowledge that even if I'm right and the politics shifts somewhat, it will take years before any investments that actually do start happening will pay off. But I think the bigger issue is that we've only talked about supply, but demand, I think, is going to drop in a hurry, which I believe will render all of these supply constraints moot, at least when it comes to setting prices. The economy does feel like it's about to hit a very rough patch. We've certainly seen that in recent earnings, which have been weak in a number of sectors. But somehow the labor market and growth have held up. 
Yeah, that's right. So far, the economic weakness that we're forecasting is still pretty theoretical. But there are enough warning signs uh, that I do think it's coming. And the strength so far, like you mentioned, the labor market, just means that demand for energy hasn't actually cratered yet. But I do think that the supply and demand imbalance will be less severe than your comments indicate. I mean, for example, just look that energy prices are already way off the peaks that they hit around the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is true whether you look at oil or natural gas or gasoline prices for your car, whether you look domestically or abroad. Everything is off the year-to-date peak. So, for example, Brent oil, which is one measure of oil prices, went from over $130 a barrel in March, and now it's roughly 30% lower. It's below 100 If supply problems are as intractable as you say, prices should have remained at those levels rather than fall sharply from their post-Russia invasion highs. But those peaks represented panic levels around the invasion. In the short term, the end of the summer driving season, the storage gains in Europe that you mentioned, and the fact that the European sanctions on Russian oil haven't yet fully kicked in have led to lower prices. But prices are still high, above what I consider mid-cycle levels, despite the near-term sources of relief. Well, we've also weathered a cut in OPEC production. I mean, it's hard to see how the supply situation actually gets worse from here. Okay, but the OPEC cut only takes effect in November. All right, sure. But the futures market knows about these cuts, and it's not reflected in futures prices. But a bigger issue, Harry, is that central banks around the developed world are hiking interest rates at a record pace. In the U.S., Fed funds, the main interest rate set by the Federal Reserve, went from zero to 300 basis points in a matter of months, and we're expecting another 75 basis point increase this year. Same in Europe. We went from negative interest rates all the way up to 200 basis points now, including a recent 75 basis point hike. Now, of course, the motivation of all of these hikes is to deal with inflation, which has been just staggering. After being so low for so long that we actually coined a term here at Barclays Research called missingflation, of course, it's no longer missing. Um, inflation's now over 8% in the U.S. and at or above 10% in the U.K. and Europe. Central banks were caught flat-footed. They were initially too slow to respond, in part because they believed that uh, inflation would fall on its own as the effects of COVID waned. The pace of rate hikes is staggering. Yeah, it is indeed. And we have not actually seen the economic effects yet. You know, when people talk about monetary policy, they talk about it as affecting the economy with long and variable lags. Well, we are seeing some initial effects, like on the housing market, where prices have started falling in part because mortgage rates are now above 7%. Yeah, and that's just the start. We're forecasting U.S., U.K., and European growth all to be negative by the start of next year. And we're forecasting slowing growth in some major emerging markets economies like China. If we're right, all of the supply conversation is irrelevant because demand is going to plummet. The recent price declines have happened despite the continued economic momentum evidenced by some of the GDP and labor market statistics you talked about. Just wait until the economy slides. First, I I think Chinese demand has already been suppressed because of its zero COVID policy. Over the past 10 years, Chinese oil demand growth has been over 80% of the world's net oil demand growth. So what happens when China opens up? Second, Europe and parts of the U.S. are facing shortages that will affect heating oil, not gas. I'm not sure that any reasonable economic forecast has conditions getting bad enough that people don't heat their homes. Okay, that's true. I don't expect uh, that people will be you know, relying on peat fires in their, in their hearths to keep themselves warm over the winter. But let's just put some numbers on this. You know, business demand for oil is extremely elastic. Recall that in the global financial crisis, so just about 15 years ago, oil prices fell below $30 a barrel as the global economy slowed. It was a massive decline in energy prices, far in excess of anything that supply constraints would have, would have been able to buffer. 
Okay, but we're forecasting a recession. We're not expecting an economic downturn of anything approaching that magnitude. And even in the GFC, global oil demand fell by just 2.5%. Well, first I would say that shows you just how elastic energy prices can be, um, is that just a, a tiny drop in demand can result in a big swing in prices. And it is true that we're not forecasting anything like the, the Great Recession in terms of the economic weakness. I think it'll be much less severe and much shorter lived in terms of the economic consequences of these higher rates. Uh, but all all I need to, ha- to be right is that oil demand falls by just enough that the supply constraints are no longer binding. Um, well, anyway, this has been a great uh, debate, Harry, and thanks for joining me on the 50th episode. Clients can get our latest analysis of this evolving topic by following hashtag energy crisis on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights on this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/cib.